Well, if you didn't already know, friends, the Bible is not PG. And this is a pretty gnarly, rowdy story right here that I think is really easy to, to kind of read through and read over because we've heard it. But, but what's at play here? The fear of Herod, the fear of John, power, pleasure, abuse, victimhood, murder, Bitterness that grows up into anger, which becomes murder. The death of an innocent man. This is a story that is as sad as it is terrifying, as it is hopefully by the grace of God and the kindness of Jesus to us, convicting. Mark begs of his listeners the question, amidst all of these layers of complicated fear and loathing, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? And when we come to this text, we're meant to sort of say, well, Mark, what's up? What's going on here? It feels abrupt. If you have a Bible with you, you can take a look or you can look in your phone Bible. But remember where we've come from here, the demonstration of Jesus' cosmic power over the universe. He's in the boat. The winds go crazy. His disciples are just like you and me. They're freaking out. Jesus, you don't care. Love me anymore. And he calms the storm, demonstrating his sovereignty over nature. Then we have him freeing the demoniac, this person that's been wrestling with all those demons inside their whole life. Not that any of us relate to that. And the man is free, and he's stone cold sober, and all the people can't even believe it. They're like, there's no way this guy is healed. Jesus demonstrating his cosmic power over the spiritual realm. And then finally, we had the story of him raising to life the little girl. Talitha Kum, wake up, sweetheart. You're not dead because I'm with you. After that, he returns to Nazareth. He's rejected because they don't believe, they don't trust him. He doesn't make sense. They can't fit God into their box. And yet undeterred, he sends out his disciples in twos. And their faith bears great fruit. We're we're told that they do many miraculous signs and wonders. So after this, you would expect what comes after our text. That is that Jesus in northern Galilee gathers a crowd of people now following him and feeds the 5,000. That's what comes right after verse 29. Instead, Mark, who is, by the way, a master literary craftsman, interjects our expectations with this interlude about the death of John the Baptist. So it feels abrupt, but it's not, because this is the cost of following Jesus. Whom shall I fear? Will you be like Herod? Will you be passive and swayed and violent and weak and fear man and fear people and fear your guests and all these things? And will the fear of man and the fear of losing your own power or not having your own pleasure lead you to the consequences of sin, death, or like John the Baptist, will we fear God? This is the cost. And, and Mark just wants to remind us really quick. It's a short gospel, right? 16 chapters. Let's just slow down for a second. After all this beauty and glory and cosmic power, and just be reminded that it's not all bubbles and unicorns. For those who put their trust and their hope in Jesus. And John the Baptist is faithfully loving his Lord. And he doesn't get, you know, 
his best, most successful life now. He doesn't get to name it and claim it. He gets prison, and he gets his head on a platter. And I think what Mark is showing us is that, look, guys, when, when the kingdom of God is breaking in, when earthly powers and principalities are being challenged, when our own idols, mm, when my own idols are being challenged, when you're poking the bear, when the waters are disturbed, those like Herod who are in places of power don't like that. They'll entertain it. It's cute. It might be novelty. But at the end of the day, Herod anchored to himself, chooses to worship himself even at the expense of the death of the innocent. Following, as it were, in the footsteps of his father. And so I'm reminded of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Go read Paul's letters, Google it, and find the timeline of when he wrote the letters. It's really interesting to see him develop as a pastor, to see Paul develop as a, as a man. And his message doesn't change, but you can almost see a softening in him and his delivery, all the way up to First and Second Timothy. He's writing his young protege, Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Ephesus is hard because the culture is hard, and they're trying to be in the world and not of it, not just against the culture, those pagans, but also not compromise, be in it and not of it with the good news of the gospel. And the church is hard because Timothy is young, and he does a lot of young guy pastor stuff. He's trying to make everybody happy all the time. Recipe for disaster. He's got fear of man and people-pleasing all over him. And so Paul, this father, this grandfather to Timothy, is, he writes him and says, Timothy, you, you can't do that. You've you got to preach the word in season and out of season. You have got to let God's word do the work on you and on them. Not fearing man, not pleasing man. And he says, Timothy, a, a time is coming when people are going to turn away. They're not going to like it. They're going to want to have their ears tickled. They're going to want to go and hear a really fancy, nice TED talk, you know, that, that makes them pat themselves on the back for how successful they've been and, you know, gives them just enough juice to get, get right for the week. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says these words, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that's every Christian, right? That's what we want. We don't want to be like Herod. We want to be like John the Baptist. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so this story for us, not just the death of John the Baptist, but the reaction of Herod to the fame of Jesus, it's a heart check. It's a heart check. It's Mark again saying, let's just pause and see what sin does and see what grace does and just be honest about what it costs to not fear man, but fear God and follow Jesus. Another choose this day moment. Not so much whom you will serve or whom you will trust, but who will you fear? And I just think we live in a day of fear, man. We live in a culture of fear. There are a lot of things being published and broadcast all the time to keep you and I in fear because to keep us in fear keeps us in dopamine, keeps us on the clicks, keeps the stockholders happy. There's plenty to be afraid of outside of us. And I'm as Guilty of it as you are. And yet there's a lot of fears within. There's anxiety. I, you know, I was talking to somebody about this recently. When I was a young guy, I'm old now, I'm 40. When I was young, I didn't worry. I had no anxiety about anything. Now it's like little stuff gets me all worried. You know, I see like a little ant coming into my house. I'm like, is my house being destroyed by termites? What's going on? 
You know, you see a little water outside. Is the roof going to leak? I mean, it just doesn't take much. And recently, I've been listening to a guy named Adam Young. He's a counselor, okay? He's a biblical counselor. He's a therapist. One of my many therapists. I have many. I hope you have many. We need, he just called discipleship in the gospel. Should be normal. And you can look him up online. Adam Young Counseling. He's great. And he just talks about, you know, so much of, of... our brokenness and our, our woundedness comes out of this, this issue of fear. Fear of man. And fear often expresses itself confidently. Sometimes people that are very fearful seem on the outside very confident. Because oftentimes it is those who are deeply fearful who are most aggressively trying to be perceived as those in control. Ah, Herod. And so this is a story about Herod's fear and John's fear and our fear and whom shall I fear and why? In the end, we see that Herod proves to be a weak man. Again, because he is anchored to himself. And yet I think Mark, Mark wants to draw out your hearts in the gospel. Jesus, look, just because we know facts about Jesus, that doesn't mean anything. Who cares if you know facts about Jesus? Pin a rose on your nose. The, the, the gal who teaches or the guy who teaches Bible as literature at Harvard can smoke you on facts about Jesus, okay? Whether or not they believe it at all. Mark wants to draw out our, our hearts so that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the grace of God can do its work. And that means that in the same breath that we're saying, Lord, make us like John the Baptist. Make us faithful. Make us fear only you and not men. We also have to be honest about the fact that we got a lot of Herods down deep. We've got a lot of Herods down deep. What are you afraid of? How are you swayed? Where are you fearful? Where has a hunger and a lust for, for power or pleasure Surpass the trust in God. Where are you amused by God and those he sends, but not really in awe of him? Where do we replace titillation for the promises of God? Willingness to be entertained by his truth, but not bow before the cross. Where are we prone to follow people, follow the crowds, even if it ends in injustice? Where do we see ourselves showing off for the powerful? These are the questions that Mark would have us ask and be honest about so that Jesus can bring healing. So we're going to look at our text now in a a few ways. And just starting with the first few verses, it's interesting because Mark tells this story backwards. Perhaps to get us to ask these questions about who do we fear and why. He tells the story backwards. We, We don't open with the story about the death of John the Baptist. We open after that. John has already been killed and now... Herod is hearing about Jesus, and he has, this, he has the same curious trepidation about Jesus that he did about John the Baptist. Who is this guy? Who is this carpenter, ragtag rabbi and his band of northern Galilean nobody hooligans? And what are they doing? I'm hearing stories about resurrections and powers and healings and authoritative teaching. This is what Herod hears about in verse 14. Jesus' fame is spreading. He and his disciples are at work. The kingdom is breaking in. And just like with John the Baptist, uh, there's now a threat to Herod's power. 
A guy in town who claims to be the king, but Herod is calling himself a king. So who is this disruptor? Before we answer the question about Jesus, we should at least spend some time on the question of Herod. Who's, who's Herod? Who is this Herod? Because all of Herod's kids, including Philip's wife Herodias, who's been stolen by this Herod, they're all named Herod. He was a very humble man. Very humble man. Starts three Herods ago. Not the Herod of Jesus' birth. That's Herod the Great. Before him was his father Herod, who was kind of a Jew, not really, more concerned with power alliances, come, came from a bit of a different background than many of the Jews at that time, and early on aligned himself in just the right way with Rome. And this is the hard thing about power and money and fame, <laughs> that once you get a little taste, it's hard for all of us. So Grandpa Herod makes an alliance with Rome. His son, Herod the Great, in the days of the birth of Jesus, turns out to be just a, a total domineering, dictatorial psychopath. This is the guy who, who has all the firstborn killed. And that shouldn't be that big of a leap for Herod the Great because he had many of his own children killed. You see, when you have power and you're afraid of losing power, this is the kind of psycho behavior that results. One of his remaining sons, who wasn't killed, is the guy in this story. His name is Herod Antipas. And what's interesting about Herod Antipas is that he is not like his father, the great ruler of the entire land of Judea and Samaria. In fact, his father was so suspicious of his sons that he split up their rule and reign into four. They weren't happy about that, and they were always battling for more territory. So he's referred to as a tetrarch, one of four. And it is his role, perhaps he believes, to carry on the family line. If any of you have seen the incredible theological movie, The Prince of Egypt, and I'm not kidding, that movie is incredible. There's a beautiful scene in there, and Moses is talking to the younger Ramses before everything gets really bad. And the younger Ramses says, I will not be the weak link. Fear and pride mixed together, dangerous territory. And that's why uh, when John the Baptist comes around, Herod is at least intrigued. This guy, John, he speaks with authority. He knows what he's about. He's not blown about like a wave of the sea in fear like I am. So he's interested. Who is this John the Baptist? Now we're told that some people comment on that. We don't know who the some are, but they're, they're not very faithful counselors. And we're given the impression here that Herod isn't truly seeking to know God's truth and his will, but he wants to know what's up with, with this Jesus guy again so that he can control the situation. Power is always threatened by what it can't control. And Jesus in the upside down kingdom has come to threaten all worldly powers and principalities. We take it for granted that there's so precious little persecution in, in, in our place, although there is some, and yet for the majority of Christian history, the Colosseum was the norm. Some say it's Elijah. Well, this just would have been bad theology. John the Baptist clearly could not have been Elijah for a variety of Old Testament reasons to say nothing of the fact that both John the Baptist and Jesus said, 
that, or I'm sorry, Jesus couldn't have been Elijah. John the Baptist was Elijah, so they got that wrong. The prophet piece, it's reductionism. Jesus has already shown them by Mark chapter 6 that he is so much more than a prophet. And finally, maybe spooky, weird, kind of quasi-Jewish, pagan, Kabbalah, mysticism, superstition, maybe it's John the Baptist raised from the dead to torment you. You know, like, like Marley in the Christmas Carol. Maybe that's what's going on here, Herod. And Herod, bright light that he is, he chooses that option. And part of what we see here is that when you, when you get the sum coming to you to weigh in on who Jesus is, don't listen to the sum, listen to the sum. This is a consistent issue in this story. Not merely Herod's fear, but in his fearfulness, his unwillingness to hear the word of God spoken to him. He could have gone to Jesus. He could have figured it out. And instead, he lands on this very fear-deepening, superstitious idea that, you know, the, the phantasm of John is after him. It's his fear that leads him there. His guilt, his shame, he knows what he has done. So Mark reminds us, fear of God isn't a bad thing. John fears God. It's a good thing. It's a costly thing. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That often godly fear is a kindness of God to lead us in conviction to repentance. But also that we should not fear man, for judgment is, is coming upon that. And Mark's question in these first few verses, as Herod is trying to grapple with, who is this Jesus guy and how do I get him under my thumb, is how will we react to that? Well, we already know Herod's reaction. We know what happened. And perhaps for that reason, in part, he should be afraid. He should be afraid, but he shouldn't. Because there is no unpardonable sin except for one. Some of y'all, before you were Christians, before we were Christians, did some crazy stuff and have still struggled and still done some crazy stuff. There's only one unpardonable sin, and that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which means consistent, ongoing, and unrepentant to the time of your death, unwillingness to bow before God and say, I, I just need your help. What's so sad about Herod isn't that he does this wicked thing, but that it is his wicked fear that prevents him from receiving God's good thing for him. Forgiveness, grace, help. We see that at first Herod respects John the Baptist. He's from God. He's holy. Herod's drawn to his holiness. He can tell this guy's different. But unfortunately, it's his love of power, his fear that turns this quickly to novelty. The story hinges on this, really, for John the Baptist. This isn't the point of no return, but it's the hinge. The hinge is when John the Baptist comes to Herod and says, Brother, I need to, I need to call you out. <laughs> I need to call you out lovingly. I mean, I don't know how John the Baptist did it. He had a huge beard, locusts, and he was probably pretty wild. But let's imagine he was very sweet, very nice about it, very winsome. Just, Herod, brother, you know, Leviticus 18 is clear. God's word is clear. You are hooking up with your brother's wife. They're still married. It's gnarly incest and it's bad. Bad for you, bad for her, really bad for this dancing daughter of yours. This is not good. And friends, I just, I ask myself this question, which I don't want to ask. I want to hide and I just want to ask you. But I can't because God's word lays us all bare for our good, for our good. 
when someone, when the Spirit through the Word, or when a friend humbly by the Spirit through the Word brings you God's Word, how do we react? Because this is the hinge. This was the moment where Herod could have said, you know what, you're right. I'm going to fear God and not man. I'm going to trust His Word. Hey, there are things in the Bible that I don't like. (laughs) How about you? Are there things that you wrestle with and struggle with? Absolutely there's things that, you know, and I can just imagine John the Baptist going, look, Herod, I know you're, you know, you think she's really, really cute, and it, it all feels really good, you know, classic 20th century expressive individualism. I know you're just feeling really good about this, Herod, and you, your feelings are what is most ultimately true about the world. And Herod, I struggle too. I can imagine John the Baptist saying, man, I, I'm human, I'm flesh and blood. I struggle with lust sometimes. I've struggled with sexual immorality. I've got all kinds of struggles. I'm, I'm sitting here alone in prison. It's hard. The question isn't, do we struggle? The question is, are we willing to hear God's word? And when God's word says, yeah, this is not my best for you, we believe God and fear God and not ourselves. It's like our life is a house, right? You don't get, God didn't get to come into the house and all right, Lord, you can have every room except for that one. That's my room where I do what I want, believe what I want, go my own way, trust myself. This is Herod's great sin. So he is perplexed and trapped, and we're told that Herodias is enraged. The text is really interesting, not in this translation, but in the NIV, it says that she nursed a grudge. She doesn't like the fact that John the Baptist is speaking the truth in love to Herod, that that's affecting Herod, now it's affecting her. She too wants to keep her power, have her cake and eat it too, so she nurses a grudge. Herod, like a true true son of Adam, demonstrates the two trajectory sins of Adam. He is weak and passive on the one hand, and he is violent on the other. Herodias, in the same way, exhibits the two trajectory sins of Eve. She is on the one hand fearful and anxious, and on the other controlling and domineering. Where she should be nursing the word of God and nursing Herod as a helpmate back to God, she instead leads him away from God. But it's not her fault, like Eve in the garden. Blame Eve. No, blame the man. Blame Adam. In fact, with a lot of the bad things in the world right now, you know, the bad sins, maybe some things that we feel like affect women more than men. The elephant in the room is the men, not the women. This is Herod's responsibility. You know, you get to turn around to, to God and go, well, this is the Herodias that you gave me. No. But the complexities and brokenness and woundedness and lust and power of his heart is so deep and intertwined that he can't receive The word of God for himself, for his own good. Well, this is the point of no return. They have a huge birthday party, huge banquet. Imagine it. Some of you guys know how hard it is to throw a party, even if you have servants. This is a huge party. Herod invites everybody. These three groups of people, it's weird. We would expect him to invite um, the, the military commanders and the nobles but he even has the leading men of Galilee. That's like you invite everybody as a demonstration of your glory. Everybody's there, eating at his table, drinking his wine. And then he makes a horrible decision. 
because his fear has not only made him weak, but a fool. It's probable by this time in the night uh, that they've all had way too much to drink, as was common. The Herodian dynasty not exactly known for their upstanding morality. But it's, it's really the wine, the wine isn't causing anything, it's just truth serum that's bringing out the true things that are already in there. And so we're told this rather disgusting story about Herodias' daughter coming out to dance. And I just want to take a second, do you see where his sin is leading him here? Sin always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. It always takes more than you were willing to give. And yet he makes the oldest mistake in the book that I do all the time and you do all the time, human beings who are not the Christ. Herod's like, I can manage it. I'm smart, I'm strong, doggone it, people like me, and I can manage this. I can manage the issues. It's such pride because the devil himself, Satan, the accuser, is a roaring lion crouching at the door, seeking who he may destroy. And it's the blindness of Herod's pride and thinking in his self-righteousness that he can manage it that leads to his destruction. Again, Mark's encouragement to you and to me, humble yourself. That's what it means to fear God, not be cowering and, oh, God's mad at me. Shame, shame. You know, he's a really old, angry, bearded guy in the sky who's going to lightning bolt me. No, he's already told you, oh man, that he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He gave you his grace to raise you up from the dead and forgive all your sins. That's his disposition to you. So to fear him isn't to cower, but to be humble. To humble yourself. Well, Herod does the opposite, and I don't need to go into too much detail, but suffice it to say that Herodias' daughter, Salome, is probably between 12 and 14 years old, and whatever she does here is almost assuredly a scandalous and salacious dance. So now we've gone from nursing grudges to fear to pride to weak men to people-pleasing to the abuse of a child. And the abuse gets worse, because not only do they have her dance in whatever salacious way, but they put, this is the absolute weakness of men. They put the responsibility for the death of an innocent man on a child. It does not literally get any worse than this. This is abuse and victimization before greed and power in the worst possible way. Lust and hate become murder and abuse. A a grudge that is nursed, as we're told, gives birth and eventually becomes death. And on top of all of this, Herod, in his foolish, drunken state, has made an oath, a vow, to lock himself in to whatever she asks for. Being puppeteered by her mom to ask for an innocent man's head on a dinner platter. I, I mean, the language is striking. Go get out one of the heavy hors d'oeuvre trays... Okay? And bring in the bloody head on a plate. Could there be more of a mockery of God and his messengers than we see in the story? And yet, even after all that, even after all that, Herod's given a final chance. We're told that after after the death of John, you can see it in the text, verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. One more chance, dude. You can do the right thing. You got real sorrow. You're feeling it. You know, two glasses of Pinot in. You're feeling the sorrow. 
You can do the right thing, and what happens? But because of his foolish oaths and vows and the peering eyes of his guests, not wanting to appear weak, fearing men, he decided not to break his word to this little girl who he had put in the most awful of situations. The wages of sin, Paul tells us, is death. Herod should have provided and protected this little girl. He should have lovingly had a discussion with Herodias, and they should have mutually rebuked one another and followed the Lord, provide, protect, fall prostrate before God. Instead, this all leads to the grievous sin of the platter. I think one thing that we need to learn here is that it is good to feel sorry about sin, but sorrow alone is not enough, right? Let's say, hypothetically, I get in a fight with somebody, probably one of you, and let's say I sin against you, and you know, it's not one of those, you all experience, it's not like a two-week fight, it's more like a two-day fight, and then I come back to you, and I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, That's good. Congratulations. You feel sorrow. Again, expressive individualism. I feel sorrow, therefore all is good. I went away. I beat myself up, did my good penitente thing. Now I deeply feel sorrow. We're good, right? No. Sorrow and repentance are not the same thing. First of all, sorrow is a feeling. That feeling comes from within you, and that feeling is about you. Repentance starts with the grace of God. It is his kindness to forgive again and again and again, forever again, sinners who need his grace. It is his kindness that leads us not to sorrow, although sorrow may be there, but to repent. And here's what repentance means in that fight, that hypothetical fight that I'm sure we'll never have today. Repentance means I don't just come with my feeling of sorrow, I own my sin. Yeah, that's in me. I'm not just a complex flesh supercomputer you know, who's programmed and bouncing around the ether. And oops, it wasn't me. Oh, I was just kidding. No big deal. Not my responsibility. I own it. I sinned. I sinned against you. And rather than demanding reconciliation with a demonstration of my sorrow, will you please forgive me? Do you see how low that is? Do you see how close to the cross that is? I sinned against you. It was wrong. That's in me. It wasn't just, ooh, an accident. It's there. Herod is there. But I'm owning it. And God is forgiving me. And his grace is leading me to you. Will you please forgive me? This is where reconciliation comes from. And it is out of that grace and mercy that we can actually act upon the change that we long to see happen. Herod, Herod loses all of that. He, here's the great irony of Herod. He takes the opportunity to kill John. He loses the opportunity to know true forgiveness, true grace, true mercy, the true kindness of God saying, look, you need me to save you and all you need is need, not works, not righteousness, not merit, not managing your sin, not spinning the plates, not pleasing people, not even the control of your fear. All you need is me and I'm here and it's free. He misses all of that. In the greatest of irony, Herod has John killed, but it's Herod who dies here. 
It's Herod's soul that experiences death here. What does it profit a man, Herod, to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? He had it all. Power, pleasure, wine, the big party, the dancing girl. And at the end of Herod's life, he loses everything. And you can't take it with you anyway. Mark not only wants us to check our heart, but have help for our hearts. You see, both men fear, Herod and John. And both men die. And all men and women will die. One fear leads to life. God, I revere you. I'm in awe of you. I trust you. Come, faithful servant, enter your rest. One fear leads to death. One man dies, but only dies once. This is the man who doesn't avoid death. The other man dies, avoiding death for the moment, but then eventually dies twice. Because it's Herod who, as far as we know, goes to stand before the Lord in judgment, and all he has to offer is, look what I did with my life. John the Baptist goes to the Lord and says, please don't look at my life. Look at what Jesus has done for me. And of course, that leads us, as Mark always does, back to Jesus, back to the kindness of his grace. He is the ultimate God-man who did not fear man, who was led to death and kept the justice of God, did the right thing at great cost. Even the justice of God came down upon Christ. And the beauty of it is this, folks. He died for all of our fears and unbeliefs, past, present, and future. So that as we leave here and go out into Santa Fe and inevitably get behind somebody who's driving in Santa Fe and your inner Herod comes out with a vengeance, we can know that in all of our Herod moments, not only is our heart checked, but it's helped. We're not condemned. The price is paid. Died for our sin that all fear might be conquered. And he rose for our freedom that no fear might ever control us. And so let's end here. Isaiah 41 again. Fear not. And close your eyes. Close your eyes. Hear the word of God. Like John spoke to Herod. Hear God's words spoken over you as we end in prayer. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Father, we are so thankful that those promises are true and that they're only true for the people that are here this morning that are doing really good and have it together in their lives. Thank you, God, for only rewarding the people that work really hard and make a lot of money. Thank you, God, that you were so quick to pass and judge the poor and the needy because we know that they're not very good anyway. And thank you that those last few sentences are a lie from the pit of hell. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite the poor and the needy. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't look to the outward appearance, but you are God and you see the heart. And when you see our hearts, you see. For those of us who are here, who are your sons and daughters, we, we want to be like John the Baptist. We do. We want to trust and revere and awe you. And yet, those deep down Herods tend to poke up their ugly heads all the time. You see all of us, and because you see us, and because of your finished work, we can be fully known, 
naked and not ashamed, fully known and fully loved in all of our fears, in all of our struggles, in all of our wounds, in every need. And the way you prove that to us, Lord, is when we come into your house, sometimes cowering, sometimes making a plan about what we're going to say to get you to like us, sometimes beating ourselves up, sometimes confidently and arrogantly. However we come into your house, you're already there with the table prepared. Looking at us as if to say, I know you, were, you had a plan here, but how about you just sit down and rest and eat? How about you just feast on my promises? How about you just let me serve and love you and show you what kind of a God I am? For the Herods of the world who would cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't just forgive, I feed. I don't just pardon, I provide for her. So Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table, would we come by faith and trust in this good news, this gospel, and would you feed us in all your promises here? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.